should have really put a bookmark in, shouldn't I? That would have been clever. Um, Hello. Hello. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I haven't had the best sleep this week, um, and I've been reading this this chapter and all about it, and there's just so much to it that I just... I've cut out a page of notes this morning from stuff I could have said. There's so much to it, and I had a bit of a hard time editing, really. My mum can tell you um, that especially when I'm tired I, I'm not very good at editing myself uh, when I'm talking or when I'm writing um, so yeah I hope I really hope that this makes sense um, and most of all I really hope that God will um, speak to you through something that he's spoken uh, about to me um, in what I say today okay so we're looking at chapter uh, 9 uh, John chapter 9 um, and I'm reading it from the ESV So I'll read out the whole thing, and then I'll uh, talk about it a bit. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you, have, you say, we see, your guilt remains. Right. So, the seeing man, uh, who, as I like to call him, is described really well, really fully in this chapter. Like I said last time I preached, you know, John who wrote this, this gospel, he was there and he saw things with his own eyes and he heard them with his own ears and you can tell because the dialogue is just so matter of fact and so believable. I really love it. I love to read John. But the way that the man is introduced and treated also says a lot about the different characters in this chapter. To the disciples, to be honest, he just appears to be like some kind of case study, something to learn from. To the Jews, he's a source of confusion and annoyance, and he's used as a pawn in their ongoing debates with and about Jesus. But Jesus, Jesus reaches out to him. Jesus saw him. And he sees us. To Jesus, those who are often neglected matter. Be they the long-term sick, the social outcasts, the women. It means so much to me that Jesus spoke to women in the Bible the same way he spoke to men. That he saw us. He has not forgotten us. And no matter what our gender is, our role in society, our ailment, our illness, our struggle with mental health issues, no matter what, he sees us. And I love that Jesus goes to find the seeing man at the end of the chapter. So when he'd been thrown out of the synagogue, that's what it seems to say, he was cast out of the synagogue, um, just as they'd, they'd warn people that they would if they um, called, said that Jesus was the Christ. When he's been thrown out of the synagogue, Jesus accepts him. And Jesus describes himself to the man as the son of man. Now, it's a reference to Daniel, uh, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where it says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. So Jesus is helping the seeing man to understand who Jesus really is. The seeing man has shown that he had a willingness to accept Jesus, and Jesus is just filling in the blanks for him. You know, if you notice at the beginning when the Pharisees ask uh, the seeing man what he thinks of Jesus, he calls him a prophet, and I think that is just the highest title he could think of to give him. He must be a prophet, that's right up there. Um, but then as the chapter goes on, he, he says different things. He, calls, he talks about being a disciple of Jesus, and by the end, he worships Jesus. Now, the Bible is full of times when uh, like great heroes of the faith or angels come and visit, and then people try to worship them, and they say, no, 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 don't worship me, I'm not God. Only God is allowed to be worshipped. Only God deserves worship. But Jesus doesn't say that, and it just shows that he's totally different from anything that's come before. And I think that the way that Jesus deals with this man, he doesn't deal with this man, speaks to this man, reaches out to this man, I think it shows that he's so ready to share more of himself with those who are willing to listen and willing to get to know him. But the main theme in this verse that really stuck out to me is this concept of sin. You know, the passage begins and ends discussing sin, and the term sinner is mentioned throughout the chapter. When the disciples and the people of their day looked at this man with his disability, they assumed that there must be some guilt there, some element of responsibility on the part of the man, or at least his parents, for how his life had turned out. Now, I find this a bit of a strange way of looking at things, but my um, ESV study Bible is quite helpful because it said that this way of thinking is grounded in this kind of misplaced attempt to make excuses for God. Uh, you know, surely you couldn't let someone suffer someone who was innocent, suffer. So there must be some fault to be found in that individual. But this is a very simplistic view of life. The idea that illness was a sign of sin passed down from past generations has its roots in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that does sound quite harsh. But only if you ignore the fact that there is a promise there that a generational curse that's passing down um, of bad things as a punishment for sin, it can be completely overturned by a generational blessing, which can presumably start at any new generation. Also, in Ezekiel chapter 18, God himself rebukes, he tells off the people, um, for this idea 
uh, for, yeah, for taking this idea and making it a proverb among themselves. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul of sins shall die. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. Job also challenges the view of God punishing um, future generations for the sins of their ancestors. So to me, that idea is kind of put to bed by the word of God himself in the Old Testament. But then when we put aside that idea of sin being passed down for the generations, the theory that suffering is a punishment for personal sin remains. Now, rabbis in Jesus' day used to teach that there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. Talk about a heavy yoke. I mean, that's just crushing. You'd be second-guessing every little cold you had. But this is how people used to think. However, I believe strongly that in the light of the New Testament, we cannot entertain this kind of thinking as Christians. Why? Because even Paul gets ill in the New Testament. Was that a sign that he was a sinner, that he had sinned? Was it punishment for that? And pretty much every member of the early church suffered in one way or another. Was this because they had all sinned? And don't get me started on the fact that Jesus, the only man who never sinned, himself suffered the most horrific death imaginable. So in a way, I feel like this, this reasoning of the, the disciples and the Pharisees used in this passage, it can be discounted as a misunderstanding from the Old Testament. If it weren't for the fact that I have often witnessed something like it among Christians... People looking for reasons behind or allocating responsibility for suffering. People can still think that suffering and, and Ill, sometimes illness is a result of God punishing us for sin or sometimes for a lack of faith. Now, there are often consequences to sin. You know, bad choices can often lead to bad situations. But what we're talking about here is the idea of punishment. And the New Testament is pretty clear about punishment. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This way of thinking is simplistic and it's judgmental. And I think it's got more in common with this karma idea, you know? What goes around comes around. It's got more in common than that idea than it does with the way that Jesus shows us, the way of perfect and impartial love. You know, it says, I was thinking as we were praying earlier, it says in the Bible that God sends the rain, he sends the sun on everyone. He doesn't just keep it away from the naughty ones. He gives it to everyone. He's impartial in his love. And and if and I think if you just look at Jesus' response in this passage to this theory that it must be a sign of sin, this illness, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I really like the English Standard Version translation of this because it makes it clear that Jesus isn't saying that this man has never sinned. He's not saying that his parents had never sinned. He's saying that sin does not have the final word. That sin cannot stop God being glorified. That everything can be redeemed for the kingdom and for his glory. Even, or should I say especially, any kind of suffering. The New Testament is full of suffering being redeemed for his glory. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not discounting sin. I'm not saying everything's fine. Um, But I just really do believe in putting it in its proper place. It's beneath him. It is defeated. It's a surmountable problem. God is not afraid of sin. Now, as well as discussing sin, this chapter also talks about sinners. Uh, in verse, I almost laughed at verse 24, where the Pharisees say to the seeing man, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, could there be a more ironic sentence? Give glory to God was a phrase which was taken from Joshua, and it was a solemn charge to tell the truth, you know, speak the truth. But here it just sticks out like a sore thumb because Jesus has already said that this man's healing is all about giving glory to God. And the Pharisees completely missed it. But as well as missing this glory aspect, they've also just called Jesus the only sinless man that ever lived a sinner. I mean, could they have got it any more wrong? Now, I found this idea of a sinner, and like by suggestion, that means there must be a sinner, sinners, and non-sinners, I found that idea really interesting. I mean, surely the term sinner could just be applied to everyone who is not Jesus, really. Who else is without sin? But you see, the seeing man, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And this was the common view, and it's backed up in the Old Testament loads of times, like in Psalm 34, verses 15 to 16. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So the righteous is heard by God versus the sinner who is not. And this idea even seems to be confirmed in the New Testament when James writes, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. But who is this righteous person? Who are these righteous people? Has there ever been anyone other than Jesus who could be called righteous if that means without sin, being without sin? Now, in Ezekiel, Noah, Daniel, and Job are described as righteous. And to be honest, that used to give me the heebie-jeebies. I was like, oh no, there are people who are actually righteous. Pants. But then it all starts to make a little bit more of sense to me when you realize um, that It says about Abraham, when he was Abram, in Genesis, um, that's the Old Testament, this is before Jesus came, it says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham, he challenges God. You know, he's one of the people that God really did listen to. He, He challenges, he argues with God, God listens to him. But Abraham's far from sinless. We've got to be careful not to big up the people in the Old Testament and say they were perfect. They were not. Abraham did some bad things. He was not sinless. But God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
And this righteousness that comes by faith, by grace, it is astonishing, but it is real and it is within our grasp. God sees us. He sees us not as sinners, but as righteous because of faith. And more importantly, because of who our faith is in. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, I just want to finish with reading some lyrics from a Jesus culture song, which is called Sing My Love. And I just think it really encapsulates what I'm trying to say today. And then I'll pray. Words could never say the way he says my name. He calls me lovely. No one ever sees the way he looks at me. He sees me wholly. Words could never hold this love that burns my soul. Heaven holds me. Heaven holds me. Lord, I just give this all to you. Yeah, we can have, there's nothing good in us besides you, but you see us. And you love us, and you made us, and you know us, and you're pleased with us. Thank you so much that you see us as righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that we don't have to fear punishment, and that actually your blood got rid of guilt as well. That feeling of guilt, we don't need to have that anymore. You have washed us clean you've dealt with sin and I just pray that we would know that and that we would let you come to as close to us as you want to like you did with that man you wanted to come right up close and show him who you were and help him to understand and you want to do that with us and help us to do that and thank you that there is no greater pleasure than knowing you in this life God um, you know I feel most sorry in this in this passage for the parents who just were so afraid of being thrown out of the synagogue, they just wanted to protect themselves, and they just, they just didn't engage with you, and they missed out on that joy, the joy that you healed their son, but that you wanted their son to get to know you, and you want us all to get to know you. Thank you, Lord, for that. Amen.